these are the skills that we really need to make sure that education systems deliver. Whether we need technology for that is debatable. It's something that we need to reflect. Welcome back to Wise on Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Basim, producer of the show. Now, with the breakneck speed of modern technology's evolution, differences of opinion on its role in the classroom are often turning to bitter divisions. How can we better understand these viewpoints, taking them into consideration, while also trying to keep up with this breakneck pace of technology? To answer these questions in this episode, we speak to Manos Antoninis, director of UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report, or simply GEM, about their newly released report examining the question of technology in education on whose terms. The conversation covers a slew of interesting key insights from the GEM report, the role of governments in regulating tech, the hidden costs of technology in the classroom, positive versus negative outcomes of technology, and much more. Now, before we pass it off to my colleague Selma Talha Jibril, who will be hosting this conversation, do check out the links in the episode description to download and learn more about the GEM report. And a big thank you to Manos Antoninis and the GEM team for giving us this opportunity to delve deeper into this ever-evolving discussion. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Selma Tarha Jibril. I am a researcher, a research manager at WISE, and I will be your host today. So very delighted to welcome our distinguished guest, Manos Antoninis, the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report, joining us live from Paris. Hello, Manos, and we are really delighted to have you on WISE on air. Thank you so much for inviting me. WISE has always been the, the warmest environments to exchange views and ideas with people. Um, I've been delighted to have been in Doha to attend conferences in the past. That's lovely. And we look forward to hosting you again at the WISE Summit. So let's kick off the conversation from a more personal lens. As someone deeply involved in education and technology, what sparked your interest, Manos, in exploring the intersection of these two fields? And specifically, what are your thoughts on how technology has rapidly evolved on what entails for our education systems today. In fact, it's not a, a personal question, the one that you're asking me. Uh, the Global Education Monitoring Report, which, by the way, celebrated its uh, 20th anniversary uh, last year, has a mandate to serve the international community. And we are an editorially independent report hosted and published by UNESCO. And we have an advisory board that is very representative of multiple constituencies. They do precisely that. They advise us. But it is actually uh, up to them to take one decision. And the decision is the choice of the theme of the report. So uh, it was not our decision, perhaps. Um, maybe one could say, would we have chosen technology by ourselves? Maybe not. Technology is a very forward-looking topic, one that involves a lot of speculation, and the report is not speculative. Uh, the report tries to be based on evidence uh, and what we know from what has happened. But as you said, technology is evolving rapidly. So we did uh, look into this topic with some trepidation uh, because things are changing rapidly. New technologies, every, on average, we have a statistic, uh, 36 months. That makes it really difficult to evaluate research on technologies perhaps as complex as technology itself. Studies evaluate experiences of learners of various ages using various methodologies in very different contexts. Some 
Sometimes it's about self-study. Sometimes it's about classrooms and uh, schools of different sizes and features. Also, technology can be evaluated outside school settings. You know, it's uh, it's so, so complicated. And we did struggle more than with other themes to find evidence that is impartial and sufficiently general and generalizable to give the kind of recommendations that we like to give. So all to say, the, the theme was selected by our advisory board. Inevitably, it's one of the hottest topics in education. Interestingly enough, it was selected before COVID-19 because uh, the, the, the board was, let's say, prescient enough to see what was coming. I don't know. But as you can imagine, COVID-19 also gave us a very interesting opportunity to look at everything through that lens. Well, thank you so much, Manos, for this very comprehensive introduction. And I want to just say happy 20th anniversary of the reports. I, and also to what you said, the complexity. And I feel that this report is very timely because it comes in the context of post-COVID. So let's dive in a bit deeper into the report's key findings and recommendation. And could you tell us what are some of the prominent and critical findings of the report on technology in education? Where would we start? Just to give a, perhaps of a, a description of how the report is organized, and I think that might also help uh, our audience to understand. The first and foremost thing was that we try to put education first. The theme or the title of the report is Technology in Education, and it asks a question, a tool on whose terms. We wanted to make sure that the first question that we ask is, what are the main problems in education today? We organized the discussion in three broad uh, subject areas. The first is the, the challenge of equity and inclusion. Uh, and for that, we look at two aspects in which technology could help. The first is, of course, the opportunity that uh, various information and communication technologies give to reach those learners that are situated in contexts that are very difficult to reach otherwise. The second access, equity and inclusion question was related to content. We know that technology gives us amazing opportunities to bring to everyone the latest knowledge in very cheap and accessible formats. And yet we know that in reality that often does not happen and sometimes that potential is not uh, materialized. The second big question in education is one of quality. And there we split the discussion in two parts, two parts that I do believe are very distinct and yet often we blur. And I think it's important to maintain that distinction. The first is whether technology can be used as a means to improve teaching and learning. So teaching through technology Essentially, whether technology helps us improve learning outcomes for those outcomes that traditionally have been around forever in our education systems, even beyond before the advent of, of uh, digital technology. So we cover that in one chapter, but then we have also the uh, other chapter that uh, looks at the technology and the needs to teach learners about it. So all about uh, digital literacy, digital competencies, digital skills. The two are quite distinct. You need to learn about technology, but the question whether you need to be taught through technology is the big open question that uh, concerns us all. And then the third big education question is efficiency. Can technology help us improve the efficiency of the education system? Of course, the role of uh, data is fundamental here, but there's also this aspect, the organizational aspect about whether you can ensure that you reach more learners uh, with few resources. Uh, That is one of the fundamental questions in education. So having covered these three topics over uh, essentially five different chapters, then we ask the question, okay, what are the minimum conditions that need to be in place for technology to fulfill this potential? 
And then we ask first a question about access to technologies, how can be equitable, and what evidence governments have to take the right decisions, and then proceed with financing, procuring, and distributing through the right policies. So that's one big block, uh, one that is really uh, making governments suffer these days, given that they're overwhelmed with choices. The second big condition is related to governance and regulation. Technology, unfortunately, comes with a lot of side effects that affect the the well-being, the safety, and the privacy of uh, learners, especially children. And there are a lot of governance and regulation issues related to that. And finally, it's teachers. Uh, What is there to be done to prepare teachers to deal with technology, uh, incorporate it to best serve their own teaching. So these are the broad themes that we're trying to cover. Of course, there are findings for each one of them that we can perhaps explore. The Thank you so much, Manos. So a good segue to the next question will be part one. We'll come back to part two, which is regulations and laws, and the third part, which is about ed- educators and teachers. But let us first tackle the first part. And what recommendation does the report make for governments regarding the use of technology in education? And how does it prioritize learners' need and address long-term costs effectively? and impact. I mentioned that we tackled the topic of technology with some trepidation because everyone is talking about technology. There's so much written. Of course, often it is just views and opinions. We came up with a simple scheme, perhaps a bit old-fashioned. I think we generally do favor old-fashioned technologies, uh, technologies that mature and people have reflected on how they can use. So we, we use the, the idea of the, the four arrows we have on our keyboard, the one looking up, the one looking down, the one looking left, and the one looking right, and try uh, to organize our recommendations around them. And we start as a first recommendation with the arrow uh, looking down. Is technology, is the use of, of technology appropriate for what we need? And I think that's something we often forget. I can elaborate more, but essentially it refers to ensuring that solutions are designed to fit uh, the context. And that means also to things that we can perhaps explore later. So that's the first big recommendations. Is technology appropriate? We find that often it is not. People take wholesale uh, some solutions without reflecting on whether it suits the context, the country, the age, type of learning that is needed. Technology can improve some learning in some contexts. There are no blanket solutions, and that's what uh, policymakers need to reflect on. The second recommendation is the arrow looking uh, to the left, so looking back, and it's asking the question, is this use of technology likely to leave learners behind? Of course, we've known from what happened during COVID that some people don't have access to uh, the technology uh, in the first place to be able to use it. But even when people start using technology and they have the resources, still there are issues related to the format in which some of these digital goods are available uh, that might be excluding. Then we have the arrow looking up and we're asking the question, is this use of technology scalable? And of course, we know that there is an overwhelming array of products and platforms in education, but decisions are often made about them without sufficient evidence uh, of their benefits uh, or their costs. So we urge governments to establish, and I say governments because generally speaking, the report has a very broad audience, but we tend to orient our recommendations on governments just to make it easier uh, to follow. Also because at the end of the day, it's the governments that are asking and are giving the mandate to the report to to give um, the evidence and the recommendations. So 
We're asking governments to establish bodies that evaluate education technology. Very few countries have that. Uh, decisions are often taken on the hoof. Um, we are also requesting transparency on uh, public spending on the terms that they sign with uh, companies in order to strengthen accountability to evaluate performance to learn from mistakes, uh, including on matters related to maintenance or subscription or how data systems communicate with each other. And finally, we have the arrow looking to the right, asking whether uh, the use of technology supports a sustainable education future. And there we deal with all these big uncertainties where we urge caution. We do, of course, urge governments to establish curricula that try to define what for themselves it means to have uh, for their learners to have digital competencies that are broad are not attached to specific technologies and clarify where exactly uh, they need to focus because, of course, learners learn in school but also learn outside school. And it's important to uh, strike the right balance. What can schools really offer uh, to learners? Uh, raises questions related to regulation that we will uh, return to. But it also raises a final question, which is often absent from uh, dialogue on this issue, which is the short and long-term implications of deploying digital technology education for the physical environment. There's so much that uh, is involved in some of these technologies that if everyone were suddenly to get on board, that would be really unsustainable uh, in terms of the material and energy requirements. It's We've been pushed in that direction, but if we really were to fulfill that uh, utopia of everyone having access to technology, the, the consequences would be so vast that uh, we might have to think about it twice before we embark in that direction. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Manos. And I am very confident that the listeners and readers will really appreciate how you put the four recommendations in the ecosystem with the arrows going up, down, right and left, because I think it emphasized that at the end, the learning, the learners and the learning outcome are at the heart of what the report is looking at in terms of recommendation. So let's touch base now on hidden costs. Like the report discusses the hidden costs of technology. Can you touch on those and explain some of their implications? Who has not involved, been involved in some new technology application at work and uh, has started, especially if you take a budget decision, pulling their hair about the cost being way, way higher than you had originally uh, budgeted? We just uh, have been involved recently in, in uh, trying to upgrade our relationship management uh, system. And there is a statistic uh, that the report quotes, which says that with the original cost of what we tend to know is about uh, investing in, in technology is only 25% of what is ultimately the cost that you end up paying. So there is an element there that we need to keep in mind. But I think uh, another cost that we try to uh, put more emphasis on is not hidden in some way. It's just that we have not really tried to calculate it. Uh, and that is the cost of realizing our utopia, our ideal, having everyone uh, online uh, with the right devices with the right software at home and in school, maintained, updated. So that is something we try to do in those reports. It's a bit difficult to describe. We did, or at least we focused on low and lower middle income countries. And why did we do that? Of course, partly because they're the countries furthest behind, but also because the report historically has been trying to estimate the cost of what it will take for them to achieve the SDG4 targets. We have made an update. Uh, we know now that countries, these countries cannot achieve uh, the universal 100% every child complete secondary school by 2030. We know that it's no longer possible. Uh, what we tried to do was to go a step down lower the level of ambition and say we are involved, uh, the GEM report and uh, the UNESCO Institute for Statistics, in a very, very powerful and important process, which is the national SDG4 benchmarking process. What does that mean? 
We have seven indicators, core indicators for any education system. And we have asked countries to set, I mean, they have agreed that these seven uh, are uh, valuable and they want to set national targets. So countries, three and four, in fact, uh, in the world have set national targets for 2025 and 2030. And we estimated uh, that to achieve these national targets, not, not the SDG4 super ambitious universal education target, but what they themselves think they could achieve by 2030. And even that leaves a $97 billion annual financing gap. So we wanted to match that gap, which we know cannot be covered because this gap remains even after ambitious assumptions about countries raising more revenue, uh, prioritizing education, aid uh, improving. And yet this gap remains. And, and some of these countries, in fact, and that's another topic we cover in the report, which is not just about technology. Technology is a theme, but we also do a regular monitoring of progress towards SDG4. We saw that many of these countries are actually in debt distress or at very high risk of debt distress, more than half, 58% of lower-income countries. So things are going probably to be more difficult for most of these countries in the coming years. So still, we say we have $97 billion a gap without technology. What would it cost to add technology to the bill? That's difficult. What we did was we set three scenarios. The first is the most basic scenario. It just assumes that countries will have some offline digital teaching and learning opportunities in schools uh, with shared devices. That's the lowest cost scenario. The second scenario is that all schools will be connected and there will be some tailored uh, digital learning taking place. Again, shared devices, but more but all schools will have electricity and connectivity. And then there's a third, uh, much more ambitious scenario, which is uh, that schools and homes will be uh, connected. We know, of course, that that's very, very uh, difficult to achieve, but let's put it there as a comparison. So we, we have actually dismissed that last scenario and we focused on the first two. And we said low-income countries just to achieve the basic offline scenario and lower middle-income countries to achieve the, the next uh, scenario, which uh, assumes all schools get connected. If that were to happen, the implication is that these countries would need to spend $21 billion per year between 2024 and 2030 for capital expenditure. And in addition, they would need to spend $12 billion per year for operational expenditure. If you add that, that creates uh, an additional financing gap, which is 50% higher than the financing gap that we have already estimated for achieving national SDG4 targets without technology. So we are really faced with some considerable challenges. Some people say that if you invest in digital technology, you could increase efficiencies by cutting some of the other costs. We don't have any evidence, any robust evidence suggesting this place. It's just a speculation. As things stand, even in the world's richest countries, costs related to digital technology are additional to uh, existing uh, recurrent costs of uh, running uh, the education system. So just investing in very, very unambitious targets of uh, offline systems in low-income countries and school connectivity in lower-middle-income countries will expand the financing gap by 50%. That does raise some interesting questions about what is feasible to do and how should we be moving in that direction. Thank you so much. Well, I hope that this is also an invitation to all of the partners in the private sector in terms of like developing offline services for countries. Thank you. So let's move on to the following question in this section, and then we'll wrap up the section and move to the following one. Fortunately, 
there are advantages to technology. There are many complex and complexities and challenges, but one of them and one of the positive outcome is that the report finding is that accessible technology and universal design have opened up opportunities for learners with disabilities. So in speaking about inclusion and speaking about enabling learnings for people with disability, there are some progress and advancements that are made. Could you touch a little bit on that and what the report findings are? This is perhaps the most outstanding contribution that technology can make in education and, of course, in lives of people who have otherwise so many obstacles. Inclusive technology supports accessibility and personalization for learners with disabilities. Such assistive technology can remove learning and communication barriers. Many, many studies have reported significant positive impact on academic engagement, on social participation, also on the well-being of learners with disabilities. This is the potential. In practice, such devices remain to a large extent, inaccessible and unaffordable in, in many countries. Even in richer countries, we find that teachers are not yet prepared with specialized training to use them effectively in learning environments. In fact, we even uh, have a, an example, I think, from the Gulf, uh, which says that teachers have admitted that they don't have uh, other than uh, rudimentary knowledge in that respect. Now, while people with disabilities uh, used to rely exclusively on uh, specialized devices to gain access to education, Technology platforms and devices are increasingly incorporating accessibility features, which supports uh, such inclusive and personalized learning for all students. We map the range of uh, tools that are available for different types of functional difficulties. And we do think that this is perhaps, as I mentioned, the number one contribution technology is making in education for this particular group of the population. Thank you. And I'm glad we are able to make some progress in, when it comes to education and inclusiveness. Okay, now let's move on to our next section. And I would like to kick off this section by asking, how many countries have banned smartphones in schools? <laughs> and what are the reasons behind these bans? So uh, let me give a, a bit of a brief introduction to what we do and how we organize the research behind the report. Starting in uh, 2020, we realized that the report sometimes struggled to provide evidence from all countries in the world, because often the literature tends to be coming from some countries, and that is unfair uh, on the others. So we, we introduced uh, a new website, which we call Peer, where we put together country profiles on laws and policies from all over the world on the theme of the uh, report. Since 2020, we have also selectively uh, covered a few other topics that we think are important, not for all countries, but perhaps in more depth. We did the same for this report, and we covered a broad range of, uh, of laws and policies on different issues. I will refer to a few examples uh, further down the line, but one of those uh, relates to the use of uh, mobile phones and whether they are banned uh, in education systems. And we found that 13% of countries have banned the use of mobile phones in schools through laws. 14% have policies that ban the use of mobile phones in schools. But uh, because there are some countries that have a law but not a policy and vice versa, altogether 24%, so one in four countries, have a law or a policy that uh, bans the use of phones. So that's quite an interesting and significant finding. Of course, things are evolving as we speak. Just last week, uh, I was reading in the news that the Netherlands announced that they were introducing such a, uh, a ban. 
I think the evidence is there that uh, teachers, very large numbers, I think almost 40% of teachers say that availability of phones in a classroom is very uh, distracting. I think this is one of the few cases where it's not necessarily based on uh, research, uh, although we do find also uh, research that says that the excess use of technology sometimes uh, proves counterproductive. But I think it's the frustration that teachers express and the fact that ultimately there's no link or proof that uh, phones in such, let's say, classic classroom context uh, improve learning outcomes. The report does have examples in uh, emergencies. For instance, well, we have an example from Nigeria during the Boko Haram crisis where the phone was the only tool for um, many disadvantaged, displaced children to keep contact with some form of learning continuity. Yes, fine. But in standard classroom context, uh, it seems that the phone overall is proving more of a distraction than, uh, than a help. And that, I think, as I mentioned, the evidence that one in four countries are moving in that direction is perhaps uh, indicative of an alarm among education policymakers that something needs to be done in that respect. So hopefully the waves of countries that have started putting in place and implementing these laws and policies will serve as a catalyst, like as in they will advocate that other nations would follow the path and the trend. It's uh, difficult to know with technology. Um, it will take time for a lot of that dust to settle. Uh, it is true uh, that we all know that. Again, you, you, you hear all, uh, different views on that topic, but there's you know a lot of people who claim that uh, the phone can be addictive. Uh, addictive behaviors are, of course, uh, behaviors to be discouraged. Now, how that can be done, it's a, it's a diff difficult question. Bans um, are not necessarily the way. I mean, people need to be uh, conscious and aware about the decisions so the, through prohibitions that the world moves forward. So you need to really internalize and understand why something is not working. Uh, but the, as you say, it may serve as, as a signal uh, for more and more countries to, to think through better what they're trying to achieve in the classrooms. Great. Well, thank you, Manus, for that. Let's move on to the next question. And could you tell us what are we learning about how students navigate new technologies? And are we seeing differences between contexts and countries? Well, I think I kind of alluded to that earlier when I was saying that really technology works in some contexts for some types of, of learning, for some students we cannot generalize that uh, there's a magic bullet technology that applies across the board. So we need to be very careful in um, knowing what is the type of learning that we want to improve. Technology has proven quite effective in, let's say, dealing with relatively simple types of learning that uh, you know, maybe the road was being used. So you need drilling, you need uh, repetition, you need exercises. Technology can be quite effective in that hopefully then releasing time to do other more uh, interesting and engaging things. Of course, it can be fascinatingly applicable in many types of vocational learning, very specialized skills where you need a lot of expensive machinery to be able to train learners. And that has proven a constraint in the past. Now with a lot of simulation, virtual reality contexts where you can recreate authentic conditions, you could perhaps see, and you do see in, in some contexts, uh, rapid improvements, but that's, of course, costly in other ways. It may be more efficient for rich countries that then no longer need to invest in some of those facilities that were holding them back, but maybe it's not as applicable yet in other contexts. But, but there is, again, for a very specialized technical type of training, it can really hold the key to, to the future and the complete evolution of uh, how learners learn 
also from a distance. By the way, vocational education was perhaps among the most hit together with early childhood during the pandemic. And yet uh, it also gave the opportunity for uh, people to reflect on maybe there are ways around that uh, problem. You don't need to be in a laboratory or um, some other uh, specialized context. You can invest in creating these uh, virtual realities to overcome the challenges. But ultimately, though, context is specific and you need to empower teachers to be able to choose those tools that they know best are working for them. And I think the big challenge and question we have here is we tend to assume that technology which has been applied or developed in another context for another purpose will be applicable in education. And that's such such an error that we routinely do. Technology is rarely developed for education. It's developed somewhere else. And it is assumed by you know, very enthusiastic and, and very well-meaning developers that it will apply to education as well. Probably heard that metaphor which says that, you know, if you have a hammer, uh, you see nails everywhere. And it's true that in the relation between technology and education, uh, that often, unfortunately, applies. We need to be much more thoughtful in uh, deciding exactly what is the type of learning what is the, the pedagogical uh, innovation that needs to happen for that technology to work also in education? We cannot assume it from the outset that it will work. Thank you, Manus, a lot for highlighting that because I think we often talk about challenges, but I think one of the most important things to take away is that solutions need to be contextualized. And you're absolutely correct. A technology that is developed f- far from a context it's so hard to be integrated within that context. And again, like you said, teachers and educators learn know best. So this is a good segue to the following question is that what are the common challenges faced by educators when attempting to integrate technology in the classroom? We try to analyze and we have, as I mentioned before, a dedicated uh, chapter that focuses on uh, teachers in particular. We try to look at the potential barriers that uh, teachers are facing. They might be related to attitudes, they might be related to age, they might be related to their context. But ultimately, really, it is about preparation. We used evidence from this very valuable uh, survey of the OECD, which has really answers for so many different uh, questions, the uh, Teaching and Learning International Survey, or TALIS, as it's being used, uh, with, uh, which showed that 43% of uh, teachers in lower secondary schools felt that they were prepared to use technology for teaching after they had been trained. Even in a more specialized uh, survey, uh, the ICILS, um, uh, the Computer Information Literacy uh, International Survey, 78% said they were not confident to use technology for assessment purposes, which is another area where we do have a lot of hope that technology could help. And yet, in reality, uh, that is often uh, challenging. Yes, it's true that education systems around the world are waking up to that possibility, to uh, a need to train teachers. One quarter of education systems from our peer profiles analysis uh, showed that uh, had some legislation to ensure teachers are trained in technology, either pre-service or in-service. And 84% have strategies in, for in-service uh, professional uh, development, higher than uh, the percentage of countries, which is 72%, that have some element of technology in pre-service education. But there you see already, one in four countries still do not have uh, such elements in their teacher training. The one thing that we looked at in more depth, and it's one of the other 
very important, potentially uh, positive impacts that technology is having is that it is changing the nature of data training itself. It is lowering the costs. It's creating flexible learning environments. Just uh, think of the world's poorer countries where teachers don't have access to the best trainers uh, as training trickles down uh, cascades and yet you know the, the, the ultimate trainer of for the majority of teachers is not particularly good or they have very high costs to to be able to move to the place where they could get a better quality trainer these problems could be overcome and we have an extensive review uh, in the report that shows how distance education programs for instance have promoted teacher learning in South Africa or in Ghana they have even equal to the impact of in-person training. There's a very good also example from uh, Senegal, uh, where the Reading for All program used uh, in-person and online coaching. And teachers did admit that face-to-face coaching is better. But online coaching still had some positive effects, and it was 83% more cost-efficient. Let's also not forget that technology has been instrumental particularly during COVID, but I think that's one of the uh, issues that have remained even after COVID in building these professional learning communities that we know hold the key uh, to better teaching because you can only really learn from exchanging views from your, with your peers. And all over the world, uh, whether it's WhatsApp groups or whatever, teachers do participate much more. The question is, how can we bring all teachers and not those teachers who are already quite active, proactive and interested to improve their teaching? But... On the whole, just to say that technology, as I was mentioning earlier about disability, can really help improve one of the key challenges for improving teacher quality, which is the, the, the high costs of teacher training. So efficiency can be improved, but we need to learn the lessons from the recent experiences. And Manus, just to clarify, when you talk about teachers' trainings and their capacity building, are, are we referring to in-service or pre-service teachers' training? It could be anything, but of course, uh, the use of technology is much more uh, suitable for in-service training. But pre-service training needs to uh, prepare teachers to be able to teach about about technology, first of all, and then also potentially use technology if there is a policy that's organized. The problem is, of course, that many countries do not yet have a clear policy. A lot is done through projects, pilots. There's still relatively limited development of policy that says, yes, we have to invest in technology. And that's inevitable, given that, let's not forget, such high percentages of schools around the world do not have even electricity, let alone any semblance of really being exposed to technology. So if you cannot guarantee that you will reach all learners, then that puts you in a different and difficult position as a policymaker to advocate for a policy that is inequitable uh, by design. That is, uh, absolutely. That can be implemented at the first stage. Thank you. Can we touch on data protection and learning in the age of AI, artificial intelligence? I think this is a really hot topic these days, and we would love to hear your insight on that. How could we possibly not uh, refer to... um, to data, but uh, to artificial intelligence first and, and foremost, I would say we covered it in the in the reports. I think relatively superficially because we feel well, it is yet another one of those technologies that pass, and then what's going to happen? We know, of course, that it will have incredible impacts on daily lives. But again, when it comes to education, we take a step back and say, okay, what is it likely to happen? Of course, there are the as I mentioned, the superficial impacts like how homework is assigned, how uh, homework is corrected. Yes, there will be 
inevitable rapid adjustments to some of these day-to-day tasks in, in the classroom. But will it require very new skills that we have not already been aware that education systems need to develop? Our assessment is probably not, in the sense that, yes, artificial intelligence, especially generative artificial intelligence, exacerbates the risks of misinformation and disinformation, but that risk existed already. What we forget and what the report emphasizes is that we have evidence, very solid evidence, uh, primarily using PISA survey data, which says that those who have better reading skills are far more likely to avoid being duped by a random phishing email, for instance. Ultimately, ultimately, and that's really important, we go back to the basics. An education system needs to prepare learners to have robust reading and mathematics skills and uh, also a set of social and emotional skills because there's so much about interpersonal relations and communication on, online and the etiquette that you need to follow. And if you really think hard about it, yes, there are a few things about technology we need to know, but the core of what education needs to deliver it's not really changed. It's a difficult message to pass uh, to people who are over-enthusiastic and think that the world is about to be transformed. Yes, the world is to be transformed, but it still needs the foundational uh, learning that we still struggle to deliver. Let's not forget, again, I, I go back to the fact that the report is, uh, has a theme because it needs to be innovative every year, but it also has its standard monitoring function. And we have 10 chapters that cover each of the SDG4 uh, targets and uh, education financing, and we repeat the same issues uh, where still a little more than half of the world's children and adolescents do not have the, the most basic proficiency levels in reading and mathematics. And the situation is improving very slowly in the world's richest countries. It's probably even regressing. In fact, it's a, the opposite thought that we're making. Yes, the low, learning levels are very low in the poorest countries, but they're at least they're increasing somewhat. In the rich countries, they're even moving backwards. These are the skills that we really need to make sure that education systems deliver. Whether we need technology for that is debatable. It's something that we need to reflect. Rich countries reached the level there today without technology. So clearly it is possible to have better learning outcomes without technology. So let's, let's be a bit careful about what is we're advocating. We know, though, that uh, no learner today will be properly prepared for the future if they do not have digital literacy as part of their basic skill set. So issues that need to be a little bit spelled out a bit more clearly, and I hope that the report is making that contribution. Well, ultimately, we need good readers. And, you know, that's where we with the social emotional uh, skills that you've touched on. Great. So just being mindful of the time, I just want to ask you two concluding questions. One is ultimately, what are some of the key insights that you hope to highlight most for listeners to take away about this report? And then the second one is, what do you predict for the future of technology for education or education for technology or edtech for the next five, 10 years? I think you said the main message and I will repeat it. The learner and the best interests of the learner needs to be at the heart of our education program. Uh, technology is a tool that can have the potential to help, but it also has some consequences that we need to take into account because they do not work in the best interest of the learner. I would say I am quite worried about how that might come across to an audience of this podcast that has a very strong belief in the power of technology for the future, that some of the most powerful impacts that technology has had historically, and it's really important to look back at history, have come with very simple, very low uh, levels of technology. 
we have an example of the television program in, in Mexico. Uh, it still does not deliver the best quality of education, but it has been credited with improving participation in second education by 18%. That's a massive amount. I cannot think of any high-tech uh, solution that offers anything remotely uh, similar. Even more striking, in China, they have had for a long period of time in rural schools a program that invites uh, the highest level of quality teachers uh, from Beijing to give the lessons in the presence of, of course, much lesser qualified teacher in the classroom. These lessons have been shown, and we're talking about the program that started in the early 2000s, to have improved learning outcomes by 32% and to have even reduced, uh, which is even more striking, rural-urban earnings gaps by a similar amount. And it's just the fact that you solve a practical problem. There are no good teachers. We cannot do without teachers, which is, of course, the key message of the report. But these teachers need support. And the best support you can provide is exposure to good quality lesson. And that in itself can really help them be better themselves. So the solutions do not need to be fancy. Not everything without science is gold. That is a key message of, of the report. And I think you asked me also about the future. I, I'm not into the uh, crystal ball. Uh, and that's why I was saying that the report is not really meant for that. There are many other people who have, are more insightful and can see through uh, the, the different layers of what the future is holding for us. But we would say just don't rush. You do the four things that we recommend in this report. Make sure that the use of technology in education is appropriate, is equitable, is scalable and is sustainable. These are our principles. I think we'll see much better applications. Let's stay away from those narratives that always, if you look back, predict that the education technology market will be increasing by 15% per year. All of these speculations have proven wrong, and they seem to be there just to encourage people to spend more money on education. We urge governments to think hard, to think carefully, not to invest in shiny solutions, but those that are proven to improve learning outcomes. Well, thank you so much, Manus. We really appreciate your insights and reflection. We also appreciate that the four key recommendations are countering the narrative of the use of technology and the hype that we see. So hopefully the reports will be utilized by governments and other civil society organizations and other partners to ensure that at the end of the day, what we are trying to do here is to advocate for equitable access quality education for all. So thank you very much for being with us today. And we very much look forward to the launch of the reports. Looking forward to also reading the reports and utilizing some of these findings to continue the advocacy that we are all doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>